Mr. Grace and fulfill his plan and purposes in all of our lives through these different needs. But the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, we've been going through a series of Bible characters and I've purposely chosen some Bible characters that may be a little less familiar to us and maybe not so much tonight, but then again, maybe so. I don't know for sure uh, how familiar we are with Jochebed, but does anybody right off the top of their head remember who Jochebed is the mother of? Go ahead. Moses. Moses. Good. Yes. And uh, she is not identified until later on, and I believe it's in chapter 6 and uh, verse number 20 that she is actually named Amram took him Jochebed, his father's sister, to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses, and of course uh, Miriam, uh, Moses' and Aaron's sister as well. But Jochebed, of course, uh, as we now know, or as we uh, maybe already knew, uh, she is Moses' mother. And so we are in Exodus chapter number 1, and of course we know a little bit about the background and probably familiar uh, to most of us as far as Israel and going into Egypt and God had so prepared with Joseph and the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine and then what man meant for evil, God meant for good and the incredible testimony of Joseph and then from there, of course, Jacob came with his, the rest of Joseph's brothers, uh, the rest of uh, Jacob's son, Israel by that time is Jacob's uh, new name, and they went to Egypt, and God, of course, uh, provided for Israel there through the famine, and then they began to increase in number, and we understand that Israel ended up being in Egypt for over 400 years, but Here we are now in the book of Exodus, and there is a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Now, this is a little bit of a historical mystery or debate, but there are some who believe that this Pharaoh was an Egyptian national who just so many years removed from Joseph, and obviously being Egypt, Egypt being a pagan, uh, idolatrous country, obviously Joseph and uh, his family having had tremendous influence uh, for, for God there in Egypt. Now Joseph is dead. There is a Pharaoh who's come to power who did not know Joseph, and historians will debate uh, if it's a particular Pharaoh who just, again, returned Egypt to such rank idolatry and paganism that any fear of God was completely dispelled from the nation, or, as some historians will, based on some historical records, and I don't know how all that works as far as archaeology and the Egyptian records, But there was a group of foreign people who came to Egypt and were able to work their way into places of power and influence and leadership. 
and it is a historical fact that a group called the Hyksos were able to move into Egypt and able to take positions of leadership, of power. So the Hyksos would have been a minority as far as their nationality, but they had so worked their way into power and prominence that they were able to grab hold of the levers of government. And we know that happens in countries, even to some degree here in America. There are some groups that would be considered minority who seem to have a lot of power and a lot of influence and seem to be pulling a lot of levers. And they have obviously a lot of influence on uh, the population. So the Hyksos is possibly and most likely the foreign group that came in, took these places of power, and was able to get a pharaoh into the leadership over, basically as king, over Egypt. The Hyksos then would have not known anything about Joseph. The Hyksos would have been probably ignorant of, of Joseph, and the Hyksos were a pagan people, idolatrous, and of course, with Egypt's past paganism and idolatry, the Hyksos bringing in their paganism, their idolatry, this pharaoh would have been a very rebellious man against God. And then, of course, the plagues of Egypt would come, against Egypt would come, including the slaying of the firstborn, the Passover, the exodus out of Egypt, Israel going back uh, to the promised land, and we know the, the, the rest of the story. But this Pharaoh was an evil man. Bottom line is, he's a wicked man, insecure about his power. Israel is increasing in population, and this Pharaoh is scared of the Israelites. That's another reason why we tend to, that historians uh, tend to think that it's the Hyksos that, though they were a minority among the people became powerful. Another reason that we believe and historians believe that it might have been the Hyksos and likely the Hyksos is because the Hyksos would have been fewer in number than the Israelites. And as the Israelites multiplied, as they increased greatly, that would have seemed even more of a threat to the Hyksos besides the Egyptians who uh, were probably more in number than the Hyksos as well. So in fear, we, we read in Exodus 1, in verse 9, having just identified this king, this pharaoh, as king over Egypt, who knew not Joseph, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people, the children of Israel, are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land." Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And we even see the name of a couple of cities that are mentioned. There are some who have even speculated, and I don't know if there's any kind of fact to this, but there are some who have speculated that the Israelites might have been involved in the building of some of the, Hebrew, some of the um, pyramids, that the Hebrews would have been uh, possibly involved in constructing, building uh, some of the pyramids there in Egypt. 
I don't know, and I didn't dig deep enough into historical records to know how much uh, factuality there is to that, if there's any uh, true and historical connections, but there are some who have speculated that the Hebrew slaves were involved in the building of the pyramids. So they make the Israelites slaves, but the Israelites continue to grow. Their population continues to increase. Pharaoh becomes even more insecure and even more fearful. Verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then shall ye kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. So now, this Pharaoh, being a, a, a man rebellious against God, hating God's people, having made them slaves, now he is resorting to infanticide, ordering the Hebrew midwives to murder the male babies, but save the girls. So we see then that the midwives are in a predicament, as well as the mothers, obviously, and the fathers of the Israelites. So we get to verse number 17. But the midwives feared God. We are going to see groups of women in, this, in these couple of chapters that were very strong and courageous for the Lord. The midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them but save the men children alive. And of course, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he's upset. Verse 18, he called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So there have been some who have said that the midwives lied and God blessed them for their lying. I don't believe that the midwives lied. And I don't believe that Rahab was rewarded for her lying. I believe Rahab was rewarded for her faith. She was an unsaved prostitute woman who, in the only way that she knew how, she trusted God and feared God, and she kept those spies. And I don't think God rewarded her lying, just as I don't believe that God rewarded the midwives, because I don't believe that they lied. Now, let me give a little explanation here. I believe the midwives were honest. Okay, for one thing, is it not above God to allow the Israelite women to have very short labor? I believe that God very well made the Israelite women to have very short labor. And 
by the time the Hebrew midwives got there, the Israelite, the Hebrew moms, had hidden, had hid their, their children, had hid their, their, their male babies. Are the Hebrew midwives going to go searching those babies that have been hidden? I think I put this on a little too tight here. Sorry about that. So do you think that the Hebrew midwives are going to be holding swords and spears to the Hebrew mother's head saying, tell me where that baby is. Tell me where that male... No, of course not. They're going to be probably a little slower getting there. God's going to providentially help the Hebrew mothers have their children without complications, without a lot long, without a long labor and delivery period. The Hebrew midwives are going to be a little slow getting there. We're a lot slow getting there. They're not going to be searching high and low, digging through the attic and tell us where your child is. No, of course not. They're going to show up late. The male baby's going to be gone. I can just imagine the, maybe the husband uh, being forced into helping with the delivery, the father having to help out with the delivery. Uh, I could see that possibly happening. He's the one there opening the door, telling the Hebrew midwife, Maybe this is just my imagination. I have a little bit of, a, of an imagination. And I'm just trying to picture, they show up at the door. The father opens the door, you know, just kind of opens it up. Says, oh, the baby's already here. Baby's fine. Closes the door. Hebrew midwife goes on. <laughs> is, the, is the Hebrew midwife lying to Pharaoh? I don't believe so. I believe the Hebrew midwives are saying, by the time we get there, Pharaoh, the baby's already been born and gone. We don't know where it's at. I, I think that they were honest. And God providentially cared for the Hebrew children, the Hebrew mothers, and even increased their fertility throughout this time. So then verse 22 says that the Pharaoh charged the Egyptians, his own people, Hyksos possibly, as well as the Egyptians. And now they are to go and to capture these male babies and do what with them? Throw them into the Nile River. Is it not above governments, wicked politicians, to promote the murder of preborn life and infanticide? Right here in America, there is now infanticide that is allowed in certain places. I did not know, but I understand from what we were discussing in Sunday school the other day that it's up to 28 days in one state that a parent can decide whether or not to keep their, their child. Murder. It's nothing else but murder. It is a genocidal act. And we look at a pharaoh and we say, how can you do this? But here in America, we have politicians who promote this and want people to celebrate this and then punish people who don't participate in this kind of murder. This is disgusting. It's Pure, unadulterated evil. And I don't think that the Hebrew mothers and the fathers and the midwives cooperated in any way, shape, or form with the Egyptians or the Hyksos who came looking for their babies. As a matter of fact, we know that Jochebed and Amram hid Moses for three months. Now, how does this happen? Hitler, from what I understand, and the Nazis... How were they able to round up Jews and commit the Holocaust and murder six million Jews? They even got the citizens of Germany 
to participate in ratting out the Jews, being informants, being spies. There are people who even just in the last couple of weeks who participated in Hitler's Holocaust as an average citizen who have been arrested and have been put on trial for war crimes. Just in the last few weeks, there has been an 80 or 90-something-year-old woman who participated as an average German citizen in capturing Jews, ratting out Jews, so that they could be taken and murdered. The Egyptians, the Hyksos, there were some who were participating. How many Hebrew children were taken from their mothers and thrown in the Nile River? We're not told. But in the providence of God, God would deliver Moses and he would bless these midwives who obeyed God and God gave them houses. We're not sure exactly what all that means, but they were blessed. They were rewarded with houses. They were given permanent dwelling places. Um, they were given a uh, blessing of God, rewarded uh, in such a way uh, that they were honored for their obedience to the Lord. And then, as I've already mentioned uh, there in verse 22, uh, letter F, if you're following the outline and filling in the blanks. So we see the perilous predicament, and then... We come to Jochebed specifically, and we see a courageous mother. Chapter 2, And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived, and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Now this word goodly is also uh, in the New Testament in Acts 7. Uh, referred to in Stephen's sermon. Uh, he's mentioned as a beautiful child or a good child, a handsome child. So we see that mentioned as well. Okay, Is the emphasis on, on Moses being the cutest baby that ever could be? I don't think that's the emphasis, though I have seen four very cute babies, the cutest babies of all. I don't care how many baby pictures you show me, I've still seen four cuter ones. But anyway... It wasn't so much about Moses being the cutest baby in all the world. It was about the fact that Moses was a child who was recognized as being special before the Lord. He was healthy. He was a gift from God. And we already see the providence of God with Amram and Jochebed saying we have to save this child. This is a life made in the image of God, in the image and likeness of God. This is a human life that we must do everything we possibly can to protect. So I don't want to get caught up too much in the goodly or the beautiful. As much as it is, this is a healthy child. This is a child probably with a good set of lungs who's able to cry out. They see this child as, again, a gift from God, made in the image of God with Dignity and saying, how, Lord, can we keep this child alive? And it also speaks to the providence of God that we'll see with Moses. How much did Amram and Jochebed worry? Can you imagine fretting for three months while they hid Moses? But they chose faith over worry. Hebrews 11 and verse number 1. 
Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They hoped. They hoped with a confident assurance that their baby would be kept alive somehow, but if God did allow for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Hyksos, whoever, to kill their baby, that they would see that child once again in heaven. There was a faith to obey God and to do everything they can, humanly speaking, to preserve that child's life at the same time knowing that that child could be murdered, but they would see that child again in heaven one day. She and her husband are recognized for their faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 23, by faith, we read there in Hebrews 11 and verse 23. And I need to turn there because I won't quote it correctly. It's such a key verse. They made the Hall of Fame of Faith, the, the faith chapter. In Hebrews chapter number 11, uh, there in verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. There we see it again. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. There we see again their fear was of God, not of man. Their faith was in God, and they chose not to worry. Are we not sometimes forced to make the choice between obeying God or obeying the authority of man or obeying man? Are we not sometimes put in that predicament? We are starting to see it more and more in America. Doctors and nurses having to make choices about participating in abortion, doctors and nurses having to make choices about the transgender mutilation of children, doctors and nurses having to make choices in other areas of medicine, and then we see even bakers and florists, web designers. We're seeing in schools, Valley Christian School out in Arizona is under a lawsuit because they let a teacher go who supported a student who publicly stated that she was pansexual. You say, what is pansexual? That means, from what I understand, that they are identifying with any identity of gender or sexual orientation that there possibly could be. So if you apply for the, the, um, the subsidy out in San Francisco on the application... There are 96 genders on the application to get a government subsidy. It's unbelievable. So this student at this school out in Arizona identified publicly as pansexual. And a teacher and the principal with the student got together, and one of the teachers said, I support the student. And the principal said, okay, well, the student has to go, and so does the teacher. And now that teacher is suing Valley Christian School, and it's going to go to the courts, and the arguments would scare all of us. But at the same time, we have a God who's bigger than that sin. We have a God who's bigger than the politicians and the government and everybody who would support that. Not that we hate those people. We love them. They need the gospel. They need Christ. We love them from that standpoint, but their sin is an abomination. And this is an abominable sin. Murdering babies. And they chose to obey God. Even though it may have meant they got thrown in the Nile as well. It may have meant they got dragged out to the torture chambers or to the dungeon. 
And believe me, the Egyptians, they could care less about the Geneva Convention. This is, this is roughly 15 to 1700 B.C. So what do you think that the pagan Hyksos and Egyptian people did with people that were their enemies? They didn't like, that disobeyed them. It wouldn't have been a pretty thing for Amram and Jochebed. And yet they chose to obey God. And of course, God providentially rescued Moses by way of the Pharaoh's daughter. And that's in verses 4, to, four through 10. And uh, actually back to verse 3, when they could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. So among the bulrushes, she set this basket with Moses inside, had pitched it so it would be waterproof, and sent it out on the Nile. And Miriam, Moses' sister, verse 4, stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it, and the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's providence? God worked in the Pharaoh's daughter's heart. God gave the woman, God gave a woman a special bond with her child and with children. Designed by God with a unique bond. There's something about a mom and her children. Okay, and here's Pharaoh's daughter and she's designed by God to love an innocent, helpless child. And God uses that providentially, even though she is the daughter of the Pharaoh who wants all these babies murdered, these male babies murdered. And God in his providence, and in, in some ways, and I don't want this to sound disrespectful in any way or irreverent way, but it's almost like God has a sense of humor. The Pharaoh wants these babies dead, but he uses Pharaoh's daughter and the compassion and the design that God had made her with to love this child and have compassion on this child and then to save that child alive. And God in his providence overruled the sin of the Pharaoh. Incredible. And then, can you imagine you get paid to take care of your own child? Now, I did a little bit of research and I couldn't quite figure out how long she would have had Moses. Some said as many as three years or five. I'm not sure the whole weaning period. Um, I'm not sure. Two years, three years, five years. And uh, I, I just, I didn't find uh, a, a good answer. But I did read that 50% of a child's character and personality is often formed by age three. 75% of a child's character and personality is often formed by age five. So do you think Jochebed poured her life into Moses in that short time that she had him? 
I mean, if he could read Bible verses, I know I'm getting a little carried away in my imagination, but if he could memorize Bible verses at age one, he was memorizing Bible verses, right? She was disciplining him along with Amram. They were putting as much into him as they possibly could because they knew, even though she's collecting that paycheck, and can you, again, can you imagine you're taking care of your own son by the providence of God and you're getting paid to do it, knowing you're going to have to eventually give him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And so they're doing everything they can to teach him in the ways of God. I can't help but think that when Moses, as we read later, he looks out among the Israelites and he gets carried away in his zeal. He had a lot of zeal, but not necessarily according to knowledge. And I can relate to that because I sometimes have a lot of zeal and I don't have a lot of knowledge. And sometimes we as men are guilty of this. We get a lot of things in our mind. We have a lot of zeal. We've got to be smart. We've got to use that according to knowledge. But where did Moses get that zeal? I know it was from the Lord, but I can't help but think that Amram and Jochebed poured so much into him at an early age that even though he got the University of Egypt for however many years in high school, Egypt, and he got a diploma from Egypt high school, and he got a diploma from Egypt University and a master's degree from the Nile University of Egypt or whatever, okay? As much as he got that, I think there was something there deep down that God had prepared, obviously, and through Amram and Jochebed, a mother who nurtured her child, that when, it was, when he was of age, he looked out and he said, I'm going to be the deliverer. And God had to take him and put him 40 years in the wilderness, right, to prepare him to get that knowledge because he had a lot of zeal. But where did that zeal, where did that basic knowledge come from? I think it goes back to those early years, those early days. And what a, what a tremendous testimony of two parents who raised their son and nurtured the admonition of the Lord. We're almost out of time, so sorry, I'm just going to have to fly through these. But we see principles of faith in difficult circumstances. We see examples of that in Hebrews 11. We see in Ephesians 6, being strong in the Lord, taking the shield of faith. They did that. They didn't have Hebrews 11. They didn't have Ephesians 6. But they had faith that is exemplified in Hebrews 11 and in Ephesians 6. We have Ephesians 6 and we have Hebrews 11. Do we have that kind of faith? Amram and Jochebed did. Jochebed and Amram had faith in difficult circumstances. I couldn't help but think from a parenting standpoint, does parenting not take faith? Yeah. Does it not take courage? Better believe it. And it takes determination. And for, for those who don't have children yet, it's okay. God will give you. You, you, you determine that you're going to raise your children up in the nurture and mission of the Lord. God will provide we didn't know what we were doing. We set Emily in the crib. We looked at each other and said, now what do we do? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and just one day after day, with faith, with courage, with determination, you trust the Lord that he will provide and God will work in their hearts and they'll go on to uh, love the Lord and serve the Lord. But we see that in Amram and Jochebed. We see the reward of obedience with the midwives. We see that with Amram and Jochebed. Jochebed, uh, even in Hebrews 11, um, we, we read there that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Do you think Amram and Jochebed had a good report? We're talking about their report card right now. I'd say they got a lot of A's and A pluses 
and uh, we're thankful for their example. And then we see, of course, obeying the higher authority. They chose to obey God rather than men. And there's so many verses we could look at. We don't have time to even get into uh, what I wanted to uh, finish with, but we're out of time. But they chose to obey God, even if it meant their life and even possibly the lives of their children. And this is a, I've given this illustration before, and it's kind of a silly one, but Kelly is sick at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning after Emily was born, and she was miserable. I knew we were going to have to go to the ER. I called my mom up. I said, Mom, can you come? I think it was after Emily was born. I think we just had Emily at the time. And I called my mom. I said, Mom, can you come over and watch Emily? I've got to get Kelly to the hospital. My mom was about 10 minutes away. She came over. I drove to the hospital, St. Vincent Hospital up on 86th Street in Indianapolis. And I got to Lafayette Road and Georgetown Road, and the light was red. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> I blew that red light, and I probably violated the speed limit. <laughs> but my, my wife's health and her life was, at that time, <laughs> more important than a red light and a speed limit. I'm not saying run red lights. And I'm not saying abuse the speed limit. But there are times when we have to make a choice about a higher authority, obeying the higher authority, obeying God rather than men. Acts 5, verse 29, Peter, John, the apostles had to do that. And we're coming to a point in America. Jack Phillips has had to do that out in Colorado. Baron L. Stetsman up in Washington State. They're not going to do customized floral arrangements or customized wedding cakes supporting same-sex marriage. Um, what's her name, uh, with uh, the website design that just went before the Supreme Court. She refuses to do a web design that is going to celebrate and support same-sex marriage. We have doctors and nurses dealing with this, with abortion, with transgenderism. It's coming to our doorstep. We don't know when. We don't know exactly how. It's coming to our workplaces with pronouns. Teachers who are having to make decisions about speaking the truth, even with genders, and I heard of a kid who got in trouble because he wouldn't call his classmate by the gender name that was some animal. The kid came to school saying that he was or she was some sort of animal, and the classmate got in trouble, got sent to the principal's office because the classmate wouldn't call this classmate by whatever gender identity named after some animal. We have to continue to obey God, even when it's hard. And we're thankful for Jochebed and for Amram and their examples. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to live these truths, live out these principles. Lord, we know that you are faithful and that, Lord, we can trust you even when things are hard. And knowing, Lord, that ultimately it's for your glory and for our good. And uh, you, Lord, even determine if and when the rewards are given for our faithfulness, but Lord, most importantly, may our faithfulness honor and glorify your name and bring uh, glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Sorry for going a little over, but I appreciate your being here this evening. Have a great rest of the week. We'll see you on Sunday.